Good morning, I'm Pastor Scott, and it is a privilege and an honor to open God's Word to you this morning. And just to kind of connect the passages, since I'm not usually up here, uh, but there is kind of a connection that I'm doing when I am teaching you. And so we're uh, looking at some of the little-known lives of those people that we see in the Bible. And so far, you might be surprised to know that we've learned from the lives of Achan and Andrew, Andrew and Asher, Barnabas, Elijah, and Gideon, Hezekiah, Lot, and Philemon, Thomas, Uzziah, and Zacchaeus, and today we're going to learn from the life of Simon of Cyrene. Now, I just have a question for you. Have you enjoyed looking at some of the beautiful artistic work that Megan has done for us over the past few weeks? I know over the past few weeks we've had, uh, you know, the, the Palm Sunday title on there and uh, the Easter message, the Good Friday, obviously. And this week we have our vision, Build, Equip, and Mobilize. I'd actually asked Megan to put my sermon title up there, which is The Man Who Got More Than He Bargained For, The Life of Simon of Cyrene. She said No. Well, I want to start, uh, before we open the scriptures, we will be in Mark chapter 15 if you want to turn there ahead of time. Uh, but before we begin by reading our scripture from the Bible, let me start with a quote from former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. He talks about um, leadership. Okay, so let me quote this for you. Our age finds it difficult to come to grips with figures like Winston Churchill. The political leaders with whom we are familiar generally aspire to be superstars rather than heroes. The distinction, he said, is cr crucial. Superstars strive for the approval of people. Heroes often walk alone. Superstars crave consensus. Heroes define themselves by the judgment of a future they see it as their task to bring about. Superstars seek success in a technique for eliciting support. Heroes pursue success as the outgrowth of inner values. The modern political leader rarely ventures to comment in public without having tested his views on focus groups, if indeed he does not derive them from focus groups. To a man like Churchill, the very concept of focus groups would have been unimaginable. And he concludes by saying, Thus, in the space of a generation, Churchill, the quintessential hero, has been transformed from the mythic to the nearly incomprehensible. Now, let's face it. Some men and women are naturally born to distinction. They inherit an honored name, a name that may have been associated with dignity and power for generations. Uh, they have witnessed previous generations of their family rise to the occasion when needed. An example of this would be King Solomon. Solomon was the son of the greatest king of Israel, King David, and he had been chosen early in life to succeed his father to the throne, even though he wasn't the firstborn son. So it's no surprise to us that Solomon became the second greatest king of Israel, only behind his father, King David. Then there are those who seemingly come out of nowhere. No one sees that they will be a great leader. As a matter of fact, no one even expects them to amount to much of anything in their life. But at the right time, they step into a prominent position, and suddenly they are seen by everyone rising to the occasion. 
The Bible is full of examples of people who were literally unknown and rose to the occasion. This would explain somebody like Jephthah, one of the judges in the Old Testament. Jephthah was actually an illegitimate child. His mother was a prostitute. And as an adult, he was driven out of his home and his hometown by his half-brothers. You've heard the proverb, bad company corrupts good morals from 1 Corinthians 15. Here's what the Bible said about Jephthah. Worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. But the elders of Gilead knew he was their only hope of getting out from under the rule of the Ammonites. So they approached him and they made a deal with him. Jephthah succeeded in defeating the Ammonites and then ruled as the judge of Israel for the rest of his days. There's yet another group of leaders, those who win distinction for themselves. There's nothing remarkable about them to begin with, but when we look back on their beginnings, we can see how God was preparing them for greatness. Eventually, they demonstrate that they have qualities that are quite extraordinary. By their character, they command the attention of others, and they rise to distinction and fame. Now, for this example, I want us to look at the life of somebody who lived uh, less than a 100 years ago, Corey Ten Boone. The Ten Boone family were devoted Dutch Christians who dedicated their lives in service to God and to their fellow man. The Ten Booms were active in social work in Harlem, and their faith inspired them to serve the religious community and their fellow citizens in Holland. During the Second World War, the Ten Boom home became a refuge, the hiding place for fugitives and those hunted by the Nazis. By protecting these people, Casper the father and his daughters who still lived at home, Corey and Betsy, risked their lives. This nonviolent resistance against the Nazis was the Ten Boom's way of living out their Christian faith. During 1943 and 1944, there were usually five to six people every day that were hiding in their home. Some of them were Jews, others were members of the Dutch underground. Additional refugees would stay with the Ten Boons for a few hours or even a few days until another safe house could be found for them. Through these activities, the Ten Boom family saved an estimated 800 lives. On February 28, 1944, the Ten Boom family was betrayed by somebody claiming to be seeking refuge, and the Nazi secret police raided their home. That day, more than 30 people were arrested, including Casper, Betsy, Corey, two more siblings, Willem and Nolly, and their nephew, Peter, who were all at the house that day and were taken to prison. Although the Nazis arrested many people, they couldn't find the people that they had actually come to arrest. Safely hidden behind a false wall in Corey's bedroom were two Jewish men, two Jewish women, and two from the Dutch underground. Although the house remained under guard by the secret police, members of a local resistance group were able to liberate those refugees from the hiding place 47 hours later. The four Jews were taken to new safe houses, and three of them survived the war. Of the underground workers, one of them was killed during the war years, but the other did survive. Ten days after his arrest, the father, Casper, died in prison. Betsy and Corey were eventually transported 
to the, the notorious Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany. Life at Ravensbrück was almost unbearable, but Betsy and Corey spent their time sharing the love of Jesus with their fellow prisoners. Many became Christians in that terrible place because of Betsy and Corey's witness. Betsy died at Ravensbrook, but Corey survived. After her release from Ravensbrook at the end of the war, Corey traveled all around the world to tell people there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Over the next 30 years, Corey visited more than 60 countries to testify to God's love and to encourage people with the message that Jesus is victorious. On April 15, 1983, on her 91st birthday, this remarkable woman died in Orange, California. By the way, Orange, California is where I was born and raised. I strongly believe that every person here needs to read that entire fascinating story called The Hiding Place. Now back to our categorization of people that God uses. Remember, first were those who were born to distinction. Next are those no one ever saw as a leader, even with the help of looking back in time. Then there are those who win distinction for themselves. And now for one more class of leaders, a very small group. It is composed of unknown people who have honors thrust upon them without an effort or even any desire on their part. They are often unwilling to accept the part being assigned to them and actually feel that it is a burden more than a pleasure or an honor. Simon of Cyrene belongs in this last class of people. Among the throngs gathering at Passover, he was just another nameless pilgrim. Yet on that day, he was forced to become distinguished in spite of himself. So now we're going to look at our passage in Mark chapter 15. We're going to begin at verse 12. So I encourage you to open your Bibles or, or open your app on your phone with a Bible there. If you don't have either of those, there is a Bible in front of you in the pew rack. And I'll give you a hint. It's on page 801. Mark chapter 15 beginning at verse 12. And we're going to read uh, the passage that surrounds the one verse that Simon is mentioned in so that we get the context. Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 12. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. Sometimes that's called the praetorium, that's the Latin word for it. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, 
That's the Aramaic word for it. It means the place of the skull, and you may know it as Calvary, which is the Latin word. Now, I also want to read uh, the two other gospel accounts that talk about Cyrene. I'm just going to read the one verse uh, that, that, uh, that Simon has talked about. And so the first one is Matthew chapter 27, verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And then in Luke chapter 23, verse 26. As they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and they laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. That's it. Three verses in the Gospels. And when I went to look in a Bible dictionary, that wasn't much help either. There were two sentences. Uh, So that's why I really wanted to look at this whole context to be able to pull this together. So Simon had traveled a long way to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. He came from Cyrene, which was a city in North Africa. There should be a map up there on the screen behind me. Uh, This is close to the city, the modern-day city of Tripoli in the country of Libya. And so you can see how far away those two are. Uh, Cyrene is there on the bottom, way over here to the left, and then Jerusalem is way over to the right of the screen. This was a city where a colony of Jews had been established a long time before. And as Simon set out on his journey uh, to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem, which many people did, he had no idea what he would encounter that day. The timing of Simon's arrival as he walked into Jerusalem was remarkable. He could not have known that he would end up carrying a cross for a condemned man before the day was over. And I believe that if Simon had suspected anything like that, that he either would have stayed in Cyrene or at least would have waited several hours before entering Jerusalem. Carrying the cross of a condemned man was not something that he would have had any interest in. And yet Simon became famous that day for that very reason. There's only a very brief mention from the gospel writers about Simon. If we take them all together, it gives us a better picture of what took place that day. We see that horrible, ghastly procession of Jesus' crucifixion on its way from the praetorium to Golgotha. Jesus was walking in the midst of the soldiers, and accompanying him were two thieves who had been condemned to the same kind of cruel death. The Roman soldiers are there in force with the centurion at front, They are charged with the safeguarding of the prisoners and the carrying out of the cruel sentence of the crucifixion. And as the procession moved from street to street, as people often do, they came out to see what was happening. And some of them would come out and ridicule or mock, continuing what the mob had been doing at the praetorium, although there were some that may have been sympathetic. But even in their sympathy, they were silent. Finally, the procession reached the gate of the city and and headed for the hill out in the open uh, country. And once they were beyond the city walls, there was no longer any fear of ceremonial defilement from the dying criminals, which would have been very important because of the Passover season. The criminal who was to be crucified had to carry the cross from the hall of judgment to the place of execution. And Jesus had begun, begun to carry that cross to According to this custom, 
But at some point, it just became too heavy for him to continue to carry. Now, let me just take a moment to uh, clarify something. We often see in artist renditions of Jesus carrying the cross, you see the whole cross together, and it's kind of over, the, the cross beam is over his shoulder as he's carrying it. Uh, history tells us that that's usually not the way it was done, that the centerpiece was left in the hole on Calvary, and the condemned criminals were just carrying the cross beam, that heavy cross beam, all the way across their shoulders. So Jesus was carrying this, and uh, the terrible physical suffering that Jesus had endured has drained all of his strength away. Remember, first of all, he had been kept awake all night during that illegal court procession. And he had been beaten severely, whipped and then beaten with reeds, and then was made to carry the cross. So he would have been weak from trauma and from loss of blood, and he was unable to carry the cross any further. So Simon was conscripted to help. Now the soldiers have a problem. It's obvious that Jesus cannot continue any longer, Yet the soldiers certainly would not demean themselves to pick up the cross of a condemned man and carry it for him. Nor will the Jews do anything to assist, because they would have vehemently rejected the idea of touching that accursed piece of wood, which was the symbol of Roman authority that they despised. So the soldiers are looking around for someone, someone that they could press into service. And at that moment, they see Simon of Cyrene. What made him stand out? Well, he was probably Jewish, either by descent or because he had converted to Judaism. But it's also possible that he could have been black, of Libyan descent, and had converted from whatever religion or no religion to Judaism. If that's the case, what made him stand out was the color of his skin. But we also know that there were many Jews that had been transplanted to Cyrene. And so it's possible that he had olive-colored skin just like everybody else that was around Jesus that day. And so what would have caused him to stand out? Well, all I can think of is that it was his clothes. Being from a different country, he probably dressed differently. Now, if this describes Simon, then what made him, what made them choose him, a foreigner, and press him into service? Now, from a merely human perspective, we might simply say that Simon was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Of course, those of us who believe that God the Father ordains all things, and especially all things concerning a son, we would say that it wasn't luck, bad luck, but it was God's providence. From the Romans' point of view, their laws permitted the soldiers to press any Roman subject into immediate service. Simon was on his way into the city, and I'm, I'm sure that as he was going, he was rejoicing that he could actually celebrate the Passover this year in the holy city. And here is the divine Passover lamb coming out of the city gate to meet him on his way to be slain on Calvary. Could it possibly be that Simon would see in that procession the fulfillment of his greatest hopes? Jesus was stumbling and ready to fall under his heavy cross, the cross that he was going to die on. Could this be the glory of Israel, the long-awaited Messiah? I'm sure Simon had heard rumors that the Messiah had actually come. Maybe he put these together. 
Simon could have been wondering as he traveled into Jerusalem, could the Passover lamb that was associated with the Jews' deliverance from Egypt, could that be just a type of the Messiah? When Simon encountered Jesus, was he encountering the fulfillment of what was portrayed in the Passover lamb? We have reason to believe that this is exactly what Simon came to know and experience that day. What Simon, what caused Simon to take that particular route that brought him face to face, face with Jesus carrying his cross just at the moment that he was needed. Again, it was God's divine providence. Because if he had delayed even just a moment or two in his journey, he would have been too late for that so-called chance meeting. Simon found something that day that he had never expected to find, but from that point on, it had become the treasure of his life. Making Simon carry the cross may seem like kindness, perhaps even mercy at best on the part of the Roman soldiers, Or could it be seen merely as a practical measure? I mean, somebody had to carry the cross, right? And Jesus couldn't do it any longer. But in reality, it was a measure that was taken by the Romans to prolong the suffering of the condemned. If Jesus died on the way to Golgotha, his suffering would have been shortened, and the Romans were not interested in that. When the centurion ordered him to carry Jesus' cross, Simon probably felt that that, at that precise moment was the most unfortunate incident that ever could have happened to him. It was an interruption to why he was there. It was an annoyance. But most of all, it was humiliating. Yet it turned out to be the gateway of life for him. Very often God wants to send us blessings, but we tend to have our own checklist of expectations as to how God should bless us. But blessings, as we know, sometimes come in disguise. Let me give you a modern-day example of a blessing in disguise. I'm going to go back again to Churchill. Winston Churchill's wife, Clementine, was a very patient and wise woman. Churchill was elected the Prime Minister of England in 1940 and served through 1945, leading that country during the war years. But when he went for re-election, He was defeated in that bid at the conclusion of World War II. Now, I'll be honest with you, that just boggles my mind. To me, that seems like Abraham Lincoln losing his bid for re-election as the president. But Clementine told her husband that losing the election for prime minister might actually be a blessing in disguise. And I have to laugh when I read his response because he said, At the moment, dear, it certainly is very well disguised. (laughs) But a few months later, he began to see it differently. He said, I feel a great sense of relief that others are facing the hideous problems of the aftermath of the war. It may all indeed be a blessing in disguise. Whatever form of cross-bearing is laid upon you and me, What we feel at first is a burden because it's trying and oppressive. We feel the pain of having to give up our own way because we don't like anybody telling us what we have to do or the way that we have to do it. We're filled with resentment sometimes against God for spoiling our temporary pleasures or maybe for just having a different plan from from ours. But as God's grace works in us and makes us willing Eventually, we will come to love what we originally resented.
Let me give you another example. Our youngest son, Chad, as many of you know, was involved in a horrible go-karting accident when he was 14. It resulted in him being hospitalized, being airlifted to the hospital, and then undergoing eight hours of surgery, brain surgery, facial reconstruction, and plastic surgery. But that was only the beginning. It was a long road to recovery, which included nine months of 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week migraine headaches. It also included seizures and near-constant back pain. But one year later, Chad and I went on a missions trip to Paraguay, and I listened to him share his testimony at a church service, which included telling about the accident and his difficult recovery. Chad told the people at that service that he had come to the point where he thanked God for the accident because of the spiritual growth that was a direct result of being completely dependent on God. The cross that crushes us will support us and lift us heavenward with a new life that far surpasses the temporary pleasures that we had been enjoying. The painful circumstances that even brought us to Christ in the first place, whether physical, emotional, um, or even as a direct result of our sinful actions and sinful nature, will ultimately result in joy and in liberty. Simon's experience might have had the opposite effect from what it did have. And in his heart, he may have cursed not only the soldiers and the mob, but maybe even Jesus himself for the pain and the humiliation he experienced that was in a way really a consequence of his own actions as a sinner. It's true that cross-bearing, and I'm speaking metaphorically now, does not always bring blessings with it or lead those who suffer nearer to Christ. It all depends on the condition of somebody's heart. With some people, it hardens their heart against God, and it makes them defiant. We've all seen this happen. And yet it is clearly one of God's ways of stopping us when we are going down our own stubborn paths. Simon came to realize that though he thought he was carrying the cross for Jesus that day, that Jesus had really been carrying the cross for Simon and for you and for me. And so what had been seen as a humiliation and painful, he ended up welcoming as honor and joy. By becoming a Christ follower, Simon bore his master's cross for the rest of his life, and he walked by his side not only for a few minutes on the way to Calvary, but every day back in Cyrene. Carrying the cross for Jesus was of immeasurable gain for Simon. This divine encounter eventually resulted not only in his own salvation, but also the salvation of of his family. Let me explain. In Mark chapter 15, verse 21, we read that Mark calls Simon the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, there's no reason for him to say that if there's not a, a, a... very valid reason for saying it. It's not to explain genealogy because he would have spoken of of Simon's father if that were the case. So evidently, his two sons were well known to the people that the Gospel of Mark had been written for. That is, they were members of the Christian community. And there can be little doubt that the connection of Simon's family with the church was a result of this incident in their father's life. 
Mark wrote his gospel for the Christians in Rome. And in the epistle to the Romans written by the Apostle Paul, a man named Rufus is mentioned as a resident. This Rufus may have been that same son of Simon. And then in, in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, a man called Simeon, which is the same name as Simon, and I find it interesting that Simeon actually means black, he is mentioned in the same verse as a man called Lucius of Cyrene as a notable Christian of Antioch. Do you see all of these connections? So I believe we have sufficient, clear indications that as a result of this encounter with Jesus on that day, that Simon became a Christ follower. If you were to look at Rembrandt's painting of the three crosses, your attention would be drawn first to the center cross on which Jesus died. Then as you would look at the crowd gathered around the foot of that cross, you would be impressed by the various facial expressions and the actions of the people involved in the crucifixion of the Son of God. Finally, your eyes might drift to the edge of the painting and catch a sight of another figure almost hidden in the shadows. Some art critics say that this is a representation of Rembrandt himself because he recognized that by his own sins that he also was responsible for Jesus being nailed to the cross. Can you see yourself in that scene? Do you recognize that by your sins you also nailed Jesus to the cross? Have you ever known somebody who refused to accept any help whatsoever? That person might say, I don't need your charity, or maybe I can do it myself. We may respect that person's commitment to not being dependent on other people. However, this perspective may in fact be a symptom of spiritual problems that could be holding them back. The Great Divorce is an allegorical look at eternity. And in it, author C.S. Lewis describes a character who wants nothing more than his rights. He wants only what he deserves, no more and no less. And on the surface, this appears to be an act of humility. However, his attitude is one of false humility and is actually motivated by pride. In a similar way, if we are determined to solve problems on our own, then we will fail miserably, especially when it comes to the issue of sin. Romans 3.23 makes it clear that sin is everyone's problem. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the price to be paid for sin is death. In Romans 6.23 we read, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If we, like that proud man in the great divorce, accept only our rights, then sin and death will control our life. We can overcome it only with true humility in accepting what we don't deserve, the loving sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And you can do that by admitting to God your own inadequacy to live a righteous life and to confess that Jesus Christ is the perfect Son of God and to believe that he came to pay the penalty for our sins and you will be saved. Now, sometimes we throw religious terms around almost haphazardly, sometimes interchangeably. Take, for example, the words faith, grace, repentance, and salvation. We need to understand the distinctions. 
Let me give you an example from the movies. Last year marked the 40th anniversary of the Indiana Jones franchise. And in the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, there is a scene towards the end where Indiana is hanging by a single hand at this chasm. And with the other hand, he's reaching out to a goblet that supposedly once held the blood of Christ. As the tips of his hand just graze the edge of the goblet, he's grunting, I can just about reach it. But above him is his father who reaches out pleading, Junior, take my hand, take my hand. Finally, his father tells him to let it go, and Indiana reaches up for his father to take his hand. Now, when Indiana's father reaches down to offer rescue, that's grace. When Indiana lets go of his pursuit, that's repentance. And when he reaches back up to his father to take his hand, that's faith. And when his father lifts him up from the chasm, that's salvation. God the Father is reaching out to you in grace. Are you willing in repentance to let go of what you think is so important in life? Will you reach up to God in faith that he will save you? If you will do that, God will bestow on you the gift of salvation. If you want to be unhappy, then have unconfessed sin in your life. Happiness does not come from sinning. Misery, guilt, and repercussions are what come from sinning. This is why the Bible says, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. After King David sinned against the Lord, he wrote, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. And Jesus said, Apart from me, you can do nothing. It isn't hard to be a Christian. It's impossible without the help and power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. As we bow before the God of heaven, let me read the words of Jesus from Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 23. He said, If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, this is the one who will save it. For what good does it do a person if he gains the whole world, but loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes to his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Father, we come to you today knowing that uh, life is not always fun that there are difficult times that come, and if we allow them to bear us down, then we will become bitter. But if instead we allow them to point us to you, then we will receive the salvation that you have for us. We ask that you would bring that salvation today to many here. In Jesus' name, amen.